0: You were born this way, baby. This is Pridecast Live on KPFK 90.7 FM. Welcome back, or welcome if you just tuned in. This is Vic Durami, and we are commemorating Pride Month with a special 11-hour program. The next show is called LGBTQ Plus Leaders of Tomorrow, presented by the Stonewall Democratic Club. Host Alex Mohajer interviews a panel of current and former students of the Stonewall Democratic Club's Leadership Development Program. Guests include Christian Green, Stephanie Wade, Ebony Murphy Root, Bryant Galindo, Lucky Alexander, and Zakaya Wright. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to the LGBTQ plus leaders of tomorrow, hosted by Stonewall. I am your host for this broadcast. My name is Alex Mohajer. I am the Stonewall Public and Media Relations Chairman, and I am here with our first guest, Bryant Galindo. Bryant Galindo is a part of the Stonewall Leadership Cohort. He is a founder of an organization called Collabs HQ. He's a very impressive guy. He has his uh, master's degree in negotiation and conflict resolution from Columbia University. He is a resident of Los Angeles, California, and he's here with me today. How are you doing, Bryant? Pretty well. Thanks, Alex. So uh, thanks for joining us. I'm really interested in this work that you do. Uh, You do some consulting work on collaborations and teaching in classrooms. And Mm -hmm. talk to us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So, you know, about uh, four years ago, I started this company called Collabs HQ, which at the time was called uh, Workplace Collaborations. And I kind of just started off with this dream, uh, having worked with a buddy of mine who needed some help with a co-founder equity conversation. He needed someone to come in and just kind of help negotiate and facilitate the conversation with his really good business partner. And, And, you know, it came out really well, and it was very successful. And, at that time i was looking for a job i had just graduated from Columbia, and he was like brian if i have this need other people will also have this need there's a bunch of millennials who are getting into business with one another and they don't know how to have these difficult conversations so i was like huh all right you know let's let me sit with this and so i took a bunch of online courses i youtubed a bunch of stuff and just taught myself marketing and basically from there You know, I just started building out my own um, conflict resolution processes, my own assessments, and then just putting out my work, seeing if anyone would bite. And eventually I got my first big client out from New York and the rest is history.
1: That's amazing. Um, How how did that parlay into this uh, interest in politics? And would you kind of describe how you saw your space, uh, saw yourself in this political space and how you could make a difference there?
2: Yeah, actually, that's been kind of the question that's been ruminating in my mind for the last year, specifically after AOC got elected. I saw that there was this watershed moment where not only was millennial voices being left unheard within the political system, but there was also a dearth of like visionaries, you know, people who really wanted to bring something new to the table. And I kind of saw my perspective, one of conflict resolution, which Helps to integrate two opposing interests and viewpoints into one as something that could be really essential for creating bridges in our political system.
1: And you're a—you don't mind my saying—you're you're, mm-hmm. you're a, a young man. You're a Latino mm-hmm. gay man. And what are you thinking about uh, representation right now in the political sphere? And and do you see yourself represented? And how can you how can you contribute to making the change in that representation?
2: You know, I don't see myself represented at all. Um, maybe, like, if I were to divide my identities, right, maybe my Latino identity is a little represented, maybe my gay identity is a little represented, but never together, which I think brings its own unique perspective. And so for me, you know, I've been kind of thinking, should I get involved in politics? Hence why I'm in this leadership program. It's like, I wanted to understand the political process more. I have a political science degree. I was like, maybe this is the time where I can get more involved, whether that's through committees or board shifts, but do something because we need more voices that represent the diversity of
1: the United States. Absolutely. And, um, you know, right now is a really wild time in America. We've got these protests that are happening nationwide. We have a global pandemic. We have a deeply unpopular, uh, president who yet <laughs> is still may, uh, win reelection in, uh, in November. What do you see the next 150 days up to November, uh, looking like? And, and what do you think needs to change in American politics as a future LGBTQ <clears throat> leader of tomorrow?
2: Great. Well, I see those as two questions, right? So the next 150 years is about taking the energy of these protests and codifying it into something that not only creates structural change, but also then creates that movement towards the new government 2.0, which is what I kind of conceptualize it as. You know, I've been writing a series of articles. Um, One article came out today, uh, a blog called Racial Justice Demands Radical Collaborations, which is that The politics of tomorrow will necessitate that we no longer just fight and argue with one another, but but necessitates that we work together. We may have our differences, but we need to create a middle, whatever that looks like. And for me, you know, I look at that as government 2.0 or world 2.0 because it really does require that we upgrade our thinking. No longer viewing the other as an enemy, but viewing them as a potential collaboration mate so that we can create these solutions that hopefully will... Create the sustainable change that we need.
1: You know, I'm actually getting emotional hearing you talk because. Uh, I have been a long time. I'm a. I have come from the legal world too, and mm. I have been a long time advocate of and believer in this uh, notion of the difference between enemies and adversaries. And mm. it's something I talk a lot about in my own work. Um, how the American political realm has gone from one where we viewed as people who had differing opposing views as us as merely adversaries, which is some someone that we, you know, we seek to win on the merits. Versus Mm. an enemy, which where the goal is merely to destroy one another. And so long as we continue to view people who have differing views as us as enemies, we're not going to get a lot of uh, movement in the political sphere. And so it's heartening to hear a young person, (laughs) uh, you know, talking about collaboration as a as a political tool and as a tool for progress in the United States. I'm really I'm really happy to hear that. Um, Just closing thoughts. What is what? If you could change one thing, if you had one uh, thing that you could do right now in the political world, if you had the power to change it, what would you do and why?
2: Oof. Okay, this is the most unsexy answer, but I think it's the one that's the most equitable, which is that I think we need a national voting holiday. Because right now, um, I view the systemic changes that we need Um, almost through a system lens. And one of the things that creates um, these low voter turnouts that has no incentive whatsoever to a democracy that apparently represents our voices, right? Like a national voting day would not only allow these people who are immigrants, who are low income wage workers or essential workers now, right, to come out and vote and get their voices heard. If we are a democracy, why is it that we don't have that? it boggles my mind and it's something that could be easily done like that. And I believe also has bipartisan support.
1: You heard it here, a national voting holiday. I like that answer. Um, Bryant, where can people find you if they wanna find you on social media or reach out to you professionally?
2: They can go through my website at collabs, C-O-L-L-A-B-S-H-Q.com, as well as they can find me on LinkedIn at Bryant Galindo.
1: Brian Galindo, thank you very much for joining us, and hopefully thank we will Alex. talk to you soon. We are back with Ebony Murphy Root. She is also a member of the Stonewall Leadership Program. She hails from Springfield, Massachusetts. Is that right, or am I reading? she's your... from
3: Connecticut. She's from Connecticut. Okay. All the same. But you, but you
1: taught in schools in Springfield, Massachusetts.
3: I did. I did. My very first job out of undergrad at the University of Connecticut was teaching uh, GED to teen moms. So uh, that was how I started my teaching career in right. an attic.
1: <laughs> in an attic. And now you're a teacher in Santa Monica. So I'm guessing yeah. that's pretty nice.
3: Yeah, it's a great school community. I teach at the Crossroads School. It's a you know highly regarded school. The families are wonderful. The students are wonderful. And I'm, I'm glad to work there. It's a place that is really trying to, to do the work of anti-racism and inclusion
1: which is wonderful. And also, uh, you've taken that passion for education and you've brought it to the political space. You're a member of the Stonewall Leadership Program. You're a board member on of Bitch Media, which is really fantastic nonprofit feminist work. So if everyone wants to check them out, you should. And you're a board member at large of the heart of LA Democratic Club. Is that right?
3: Yes, yes. Just uh, started doing that work earlier in the spring as well. So it seemed like all of my interests, my classroom teaching, And my political interests all came together uh, with my new uh, California life, which is about four four years in now.
1: California. Um, That's awesome. Fantastic. So what inspired you to uh, get involved with politics?
3: So I was just asked recently about my political journey, and I realized that I always leave something out. Um, My dad's a teamster. He started driving a truck right around the time when I was born. It was like I'm having a kid. I need a good, solid job. And, uh, he drove a truck for the next 30 years and put me through college. And so I think having that teamster dad and having a real awareness of of labor and, uh, unions and having him go on strikes several times throughout my childhood and hearing about scabs and learning definitely not to ever cross a picket line really, uh, helped me to establish myself as a a politically thinking person. Uh, but then also in my twenties, um, I was a women's studies minor with a whole bunch of political folks. And in our 20s, some of those folks started to run for office or become involved with NARAL or Planned Parenthood. And I was just always being invited to nights out and conversations and DSA chats in college basements. And I think I was just always sort of reading and involved and and ready to show up and have those conversations with whoever wanted to have them.
1: Fantastic. And so you've, you've been involved now. You're you're with the board member, you're a board member of Heart of L.A. What are some of like the big issues that you see are the most pressing issues um, facing our country? And uh, what are your most important issues that you take to heart with right with politics right now?
3: Yeah, literacy is huge for me. A lot of what we see with income and in quality can be traced back to literacy and access to education. Uh, I also really care about uh, access to abortion. I'm not even going to say, uh, you know, reproductive choice, reproductive justice, <laughs> nice terms. I love them, but I really care about abortion access. And I also care about uh, having women and people of color and queer people who want to run for office getting access to the funds that they need. Um, it's really great to talk about getting money out of politics, and I hope we can do that. But for now people who want to run for office, good people who don't come from wealthy families need us to fundraise for them. And I realize that I actually don't mind asking folks who have money to share it with good people who want to run for office. So I'm hoping to do even more of that this summer.
1: I think you talk about two interesting points to me. One is sort of the the necessity of funding things like access to abortion and education, and then also the need to remove corporate funding out of politics and how that's having an outsized influence influence on our politics. It kind of brings to mind some of the 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 chants that we're hearing in these protests, um, the recent uh, Black Lives Matter protests about defunding the police. Which has been sort of a uh, misconstrued as meaning that we should sort of eliminate police departments, but what really the crux of it is is, is that uh, we should reappropriate and redistribute funding for community-based services like education. Um, what do you feel about those these protests right now, and how are you doing? Um, and how are you feeling just personally?
3: I haven't actually been out to a lot of uh, protests. I had some health issues last year, and I just feel like it's better for me to do my activism at home and keep whatever germs I have at home. So I've been doing my activism from home, but I do see people getting hinged on this language of, should it be defund the police or demilitarize the police? I don't really care what language we use. I looked at the LA uh, budget, and I saw what went to education, what went to social services, and what went to the police. And I, I feel like if everybody saw that chart, of how much money goes to the police versus everything else that needs to build our society, uh, we will see that we basically have a police force with like a little bit of school and a little bit of social services and a little bit of arts. And that's it. Uh, So much of our funding goes to maintaining a police force and the the money needs to be redistributed to maintain a full, safe society for everyone. So I don't care what we call it. Uh, I'll let those people shake it out and find a phrase that works for them. But we need to redistribute the funds of our taxpayer dollars to make a full society where people have access to education, access to homes, solid schools. And we can't have that when the overwhelming amount of our taxpayer dollars goes to the police.
1: Absolutely. And what do you think right now about what do you think about these protests in terms of how can we help sort of parlay this enthusiasm that we're seeing in this real activism into real results politically? Um, Are you concerned about November? Do you think that we can turn this engagement into, um, you know, political change come November? Is this a bigger conversation for a more long term? What are your thoughts there?
3: I think we can. I think we can keep this enthusiasm going into November. I think people can uh, make noise, call the people who are in charge, try to be in charge themselves, but they also have to show up to vote. And I get really upset when people say, well, voting is kind of the least important thing of all of this. I think it's the most important. I come from a family who left South Carolina in the 50s because they weren't allowed to vote. It was Orangeburg, South Carolina. Black folks didn't have the right to vote. And so as part of the Mm. Great Migration, we even moved north, and my family votes for everything, you know, dog catcher, male, (laughs) general, whatever it is, I'm showing up to vote. So I think we need to keep this energy going. We need to rattle, you know, the chains of power, but we also need to show up to vote. We need to do all of it because if we keep making this noise and we don't show up to vote, I think that we're, we're really losing, losing the moment and not just for the presidency, but down ballot too. Congress, school board. A lot of people don't know who their city people are. You need to find out who everybody is. Neighborhood council, find out who that person is and vote on down the line.
1: Yep. And I think when people turn out, we win. And a lot of people don't realize that, you know, these. a lot of elections are decided by such small margins. So it's really important. If you are out there at a protest, you know, and you're protesting and you're not registered to vote, put your money where your mouth is. Register and let's get this done. Please um, register to vote. Please.
3: Yes. And then show up and bring a friend. Bring a young friend. Bring a friend under 25. Bring a friend who just turned 18. Somebody's little sibling. That's Absolutely. what I do.
1: So uh, my final question to you, and I hope you don't mind my asking, is um, you are you identify as straight and you're very involved in the queer activist activist space. I was wondering what is what inspires you to be engaged with the queer space?
3: I would never self-identify as an ally. I feel like you can't just go around proclaiming yourself an ally. If someone in the queer community would include me as an ally, I would be delighted. But I just feel like it's my responsibility as someone who has a little bit of privilege, um you know i've had a good education i you know no one's trying to take my marriage away and i have uh it's my obligation to extend whatever little bit of privilege that i have to my queer brothers and sisters so that is an area where i am not being discriminated against i'm happy to share that privilege um I always knew that I would be able to marry the person that I wanted. I always knew that I could get health insurance from the person that I married if they had it. I always knew that no one was going to call me, uh, you know, yell names at me down the street due to my sexuality. They might call me other names, but not that. So that's an area of privilege that I have. And I have no problem extending that to, you know, my queer brothers and sisters who frankly have always been the people who extended that to me.
1: I'm actually moved by that answer, so I <laughs> wasn't expecting that today. I have tears in my eyes, so thank Wonderful. you for that answer. That's beautiful. Um, thank you so much, Ebony Murphy Root, for joining us. It's been short but sweet. How can people who are listening to this uh, support you and and follow you?
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm the real Miss Murphy. I'm on Instagram, Ebony. Absolutely. I Google right up if you want to find me. And uh, I'm always glad to, to talk and share my ideas and hear what work other folks are doing out
1: in the community. Thank you so much. That has been Ebony Murphy Root. We are so pleased you got to join us. Thank you. We are back with Stephanie Wade. She is a trans woman, former military. She works for Congressman Jill Cisneros down in Orange County, California. Ah, that's Gil says. Gil, I you know I've interviewed him and I called him Jill to his to his face and I still can't get it right. So Gil Cisneros, who is uh, one of the uh, newly elected Blue Wave uh, members of Congress from 2018. And uh, I'd like to welcome Stephanie Wade to the broadcast. So, uh, tell us a little bit about being a trans woman in the military. I'm re- well,
4: I'll say first, um, I wasn't serving openly. I was, I was so deep in the closet, I didn't really know even who I was. Um, and I think that's not an uncommon experience. But then there are those brave souls who have come out. I, I'm in contact with a Marine who um, was a staff sergeant in the infantry, and She's a trans woman. I am also in contact with actually one of our constituents who's serving in the U S army and, and he's uh he just made Sergeant. Um, so, you know, those people are extraordinarily brave and just really courageous and do great work. And, um, but you know, I came out, um, just a few, or just a year ago, actually, I'm sort of a baby trans. I've been medically transitioning for about three years, but, um, I only um, came out completely socially to my family and to the world and went full time, as they say, last year at Pride. And boy, what a different Pride we're having this year.
1: Right. And happy Pride. It has been uh, an emotional couple days as we enter into LGBTQ Pride Month, because on the one hand, we have uh, the Supreme Court ruling that just came out this Monday um, protecting LGBT. Uh, employees from workplace discrimination. On the other hand, we have a president who just a few days ago uh, passed a rule that would stop protecting LGBT people from uh, discrimination in healthcare and health insurance space. So what are your thoughts um, in terms of where we're at or where we're at with trans rights? Because it feels to me like it's still an area of the LGBTQ plus acronym that um, has a lot of work left to do.
4: Yeah. And the first thing I'd say, and I hate to keep adding an alphabet soup. And I know yeah. it's complicated and it, it distresses people. But I think we also need to talk about, you know, our um our intersex and our nonconforming and our asexual community as well. Like, I mean, we, we really need all those acronyms. One of the things I would say is that I think we're more united than ever. I mean, I think there have been times when, you know, one part of our coalition has has really questioned you know, well, you know, do I want to identify with those people? And they're so out there. I think this has brought us home to bear. And, and there's a there's a, a woman I'm very proud of and I work with uh, organizing. And she's a lesbian woman and a, and a business leader here in Orange County, Audrey Prosser. And, and we did a panel not too long ago. And one of the things she talked about, cause she's been active really since, um, you know, the, the earliest of the, the AIDS crisis. And she said, you know, every time we've been knocked down here in Orange County, where I currently live and work, you know, my my home down here, you know, behind the orange curtain, it's been a tough place to be LGBTQIA. It, I mean, just any place in there. But every time they've knocked us back down, we've come up stronger. And, you know, in the past 20 years, we've made enormous gains, mainly because you know, having any one of these identities, it's no respecter of persons. We exist in all walks of life. You know, for instance, my military experience sounds, you know, I'm a very proud former Marine. I was an infantry officer. I spent nine years in the Marine Corps and I loved what I did. And, you know, that's not people's impression of what pride is. But, you know, I think maybe it sounded like I was on a dark note before, but I I think this moment is incredibly positive. I mean, for one thing, you can't, cancel the pride that's inside, right? And for another, the intersectionality in the community, not just between the letters of the acronym, but understanding that all black lives matter. You know, the the Bostock case, the court's ruling the other day is incredibly positive. Um, But the fight continues. And and that is one of my fears is that people think, well, you know, we now have equality in employment throughout the land. We do have de jure equality in employment. But as you point out that until the Equality Act passes, there are going to be, you know, nearly half the country that, um, you know, the rights we have may be sacrosanct legally, um, in employment. But as you know, the Trump, this, this ruling won't affect what the Trump administration did the other day to say that medical providers can discriminate against LGBT people, particularly trans people. So, you know, we're in the midst of a fight. And I think we're going to win that fight and we're going to come out stronger and better than ever. But that Equality Act is more important than ever. And make no mistake, it's on the ballot this year. I
1: do want to talk to you about what you brought up a second ago about intersectionality. I think is very important. But I want to talk to you a little bit about your background with politics, how you got interested, how you got involved, and how you got involved with Stonewall's
4: leadership program. My background sort of in activism started, my gateway drug, as it were, was um, becoming a surf rider activist um, in the very early, about 2001 I was um, chair of the New York City chapter. That's not an oxymoron. We have a surfable beach in New York. I won't tell you where it is because we're not supposed to say that. But no, I, I got great training as, um, as an organizer and an activist through the Surfrider Foundation and really participated in a lot of campaigns with a lot of great people. And it's a fantastic organization. And then you know, I was always interested in politics and volunteered for campaigns here and there. But then, you know, I refer to myself as class of 2016. Uh, a lot of people know Steve Pearson from Swing Left. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he often uses that term. But I invented that, Steve. I'm taking it back. <laughs> uh, no, 2016 activated so, so many mm-hmm. of us. And Say what you want about President Trump, but he brought us all together.
1: <laughs> those there's, there's silver linings everywhere i suppose if you're
4: looking for it yeah life handed lemons right yeah. so um you know i got very involved with steve and a couple others in really helping to direct first in in ca25 where um we elected katie hill and now we're working really hard to put a democrat back in that seat and Christ, get christy smith to win in november um uh, but that sort of brought me to the attention and I started doing some I, I left a teaching career and went to do full time organizing and then wound up working for now Congressman Cisneros on his campaign and um, and then decided I wanted to be on the official side, which is very different, but really important and really gratifying.
1: We were talking about intersectionality for a bit. And as we go into LGBT Pride Month and we have these nationwide and really global protests that are happening in support of racial justice, it had me thinking a lot about how the very first uh, brick that was thrown at the Stonewall Riots was by a trans woman of color. And so there isn't any Pride, LGBTQIA Pride Month without trans people. And there's not LGBTQIA Pride Month without people of color. And so I was wondering what our obligation... I mean, they have to be
4: the bravest of all. Of because course. Because they face, face that much more stigma. And I'd I point out, you know, you're talking about Martha P. Johnson. Yes. And, you know, it, it predates that. I mean, because we, we really need to talk about the Compton cafeteria riots, right? Which, again, were led by gender nonconforming, you know, the forefront of that movement was gender nonconforming people largely of color. So, you know, you have to understand that those that were the most the furthest on the outside have really contributed the most. And so I, I'm quick to step aside when, when there are those folks in the room and to make sure that I don't use my privilege. And, you know, I, I hope I'm not doing that now. You know?
1: Where can people find you? Where can people support you who want to follow your path and, and to, to hear more about you?
4: Well, um, I am considering a, uh, a run for something, but I'm not prepared to announce just yet, but okay. I might be on the ballot for something here in Orange County. Um, in November, and if that's the case, very shortly, I'll find them.
1: We are back with Zakia N Wright. She is also a cohort cohort in the Stonewall Leadership Program. She's a board member of the Lesbian and Gay Advisory Board in Weho. Uh, she's former military, she's now a lawyer, and I'm sorry, I know that you identify as non-binary, so am I properly identifying you when I say she? Those are those your pronouns?
5: Um, uh, my pronouns are they.
1: They, so I apologize. See, an education, it's an education in person, in real time. Uh, and I want to ask you a little more about that, but thank you so much, Zakia, for joining us.
5: Absolutely, absolutely. And I like that you said it's an education, right? It can just be a quick, hey, these are my pronouns and move on. No need for anyone to feel weird. Just get it right and keep it going, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'm only dying on the inside. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no need to. Totally
5: <laughs> Thank blind.
1: you. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> so uh, you do identify as non-binary. Can you talk to us a little bit about that experience and kind of help educate the people that are listening to us about that experience and what it means?
5: Sure, absolutely. So, um as you're saying, she um I'm biologically uh, female. um but I think I realized early on, like high school that the that she never really felt right. Um, I was in high school in like two thousand and four, so there wasn't language then the non-binary, at least not that I was aware of. Um, and so, I think in the last few years, I've sort of started realizing that the she doesn't fit, he doesn't fit. So somewhere in between is where it feels more comfortable. Um, And so that that to me is more closely of of who I am than she or she or
1: he. So Fantastic. Um, When did you first kind of come to, you said, like a middle school, high school?
5: Yeah, it was like high school, Um, you know, teachers are always like, he, she, you know, they they refer to you, you know, um, by pronouns and it never, it never sat right. It was like, there has to be something else. But again, I didn't have the language. Um, And so now that it's sort of, you know, become more, more normal or at least more widespread um, that folks are experimenting with what feels right and what feels more um, appropriate for them. um, I I came across they and was like, "I, I like that.
0: This is Pridecast live on KPFK 90.7 FM, an 11-hour special program commemorating Pride Month. I am Vic Jarami, and you're listening to LGBTQ Plus Leaders of Tomorrow.
1: You know, define definition in the world by making it uh, an us versus them, a Republican versus Democrat, good versus evil. And we have a lot of boxes that we put people in, into, and that's <laughs> how we learn to define them. And I think maybe that's a part of what is very hard for people to grasp about the concept of they as a pronoun. Do you find that um, this is still like an area that's very complicated for people or is, has it been relatively easy for you to manage and to navigate?
5: I think it's complicated for other folks. Um, I think everyone is just so used to saying she, they. Um, even recently, um, I actually started um, at a new job and my first conversation to have was, hey, my pronouns are this. And. Um, and the person was just taken aback. Like I think she didn't know how to proceed, um, and so I was like, so I sort of took a, a I guess, a teachable <laughs> moment, and was like, listen, like it's, I get that it might not be normal or whatever, and it's okay if you make mistakes. It's okay if you forget, um, but this is just what's comfortable for me. Just like she is comfortable for you, I, you know, so just, to, just try to remember, and when you don't, I'll remind you, and we'll keep it going.
1: Absolutely. Well, I mean, just even being able to talk to you about this so freely, it's very, very educational because I think there's a lot of people even in our own community that that are still learning and growing. So it's, um, it's really cool. That's very cool. So you are a member of the Stonewall leadership cohort, and you're obviously an activist in the queer space. What uh, inspired you to get involved with politics?
5: Um, I think I'll say... So I'm an attorney by career, and I... Almost, I chose that profession because when I was when I would watch um, like news or C-SPAN or CNN or any of those things growing up, all of the politicians were lawyers. And so, in my mind, in my ten-year-old mind, I was like, "Oh, so I should be a lawyer if I want to be a politician, <laughs> right?" So, I feel like that part for me almost came first. Um, and I think it was just in- inspiring. Um, I mean, I worked for a couple campaigns even throughout like college before I even understood you know, even the mechanics of any of it, I just knew that those people had the power to make change. Those people were able to get in front of large groups of people, explain things, you know, proficiently, and, and sort of get movements behind them. I don't know if that's so much if that's true as much as it used to be um, back then as it is now. But certainly growing up, I, I just looked at a lot of politicians and I just had a, an immense amount of respect and admiration. And I wanted to be among that
1: group. Amazing. And you do a lot of work with the, the Lesbian and Gay Advisory Board in WeHo. What kind of work do you guys do over there?
5: So the Lesbian Gay Advisory Board, um, I was appointed in April of 2019. So I'm still, i uh, say, fairly new to the board. But when I spoke with, at the time, Mayor John D'Amico, um, I let him know that, like, I'm really interested in seeing more non-binary folks, more people of color, specifically black folks represented and city government, right? There's a lot of, you know, the social aspect of folks spending their time and their money um, and visiting businesses there. So I think our interests also need to be portrayed in government and decisions for government. So part of LGAB, it's really trying to figure out how we can incorporate more folks bring more folks to the table. Um, and that for me is, like I said, it's, it's definitely bringing more queer, um, black folks to the table, but also not forgetting that bisexual pansexual groups like that aren't represented necessarily on a board in the city of West Hollywood. And I think they should be. And so, um, I, one of the boards, one of the first bo- boards I joined was the bisexual, um, committee. And a part of that was sort of, I I, I joined it almost to, <laughs> to disrupt because, um, I think that there there shouldn't just be sort of a subcommittee for this group. Um, and also it should be more expansive. And so that's one of the things on my list. Another thing before COVID happened uh, was I wanted to have
1: COVID, a
5: panel of, <laughs> <laughs> right? And it was I mean it took a lot. It was a lot of months of work of planning this thing, but I wanted to have a um. A panel of professional, masculine identified, um, black people to talk about what do we need in our, from our jobs? What do we need from our coworkers? What do we need from other colleagues to support us in the workplace? Um, so we're not being misgendered as he, you know, because we show up to work in a bow tie and a, and a, you know, traditionally male, you know, quote unquote male suit. Um, and what, you know what employers can do and other folks can do to support us in that. Uh, and that was ready to go for lesbian day. Um, and then COVID happened. So those are some of the ideas that I want to bring to the table for El LGAB. Um, and within Mayor John D'Amico and now Mayor uh, Lindsay Horvath, I think that those are things that the city's open to doing. And so I'm excited for when things get started again, to be able to start working on those projects and bringing more people in to get ideas of What do you want the city to be doing for you that it's not doing right now? And what is it doing well? So we can maybe even, uh, you know, highlight those things.
1: One of the things you brought up, which I find really important, is uh, it's about representation and even intersectionality, um, uh, representation of intersectional folks. And, um, you know, we're into LGBTQ Pride Month right now, and we have these sort of nationwide, in fact, global protests happening for racial justice and uh, for uh, reform in in policing practices. And I I wonder, how are you doing um, with all of what's going on? How are you feeling? And also, are you... You feeling hopeful optimistic that these uh, protests will really be an inflection point that lead to actual change
5: sure so when the first protests happened in Los Angeles um, I think I was just sort of taken aback by just how big it was I was taken aback by just all of the things that came with it and so for that one I just sort of watched the news like all day and it was just like what you know like what's happening like what's what's this movement Um, As it sort of settled in and after the protest, to me, I think I got a little pessimistic because I was like, well, we've done this before, right? This happened with Ferguson. This has happened many times before where there was this outcry for reform. People were fired up and then it dissipated. And my fear is that that will happen again. And so it's really trying as as a leader, as a citizen, as a person, as a person that cares, as a black person, it's figuring out how do we keep this fire burning? How do we keep folks engaged? How do we keep our white counterparts, our Latinx counterparts, how do we keep all these folks interested and fighting with us in this? And that, I think, is is the part of the work that I really want to have conversations about and figure out how we do that. I think the protests are amazing i think folks are angry and i think they need to be able to go to the streets and do whatever that whatever they need to in order to express the anger that they're feeling and i think that that's an important part i in no way think that folks should downplay you know the those resistance movements um i think it goes hand in hand with you know working with you know, calling your legislatures, it goes hand in hand with meeting with other civic organizations and things like that. I think they all go together. I don't think it's one before the other. And I think they're all important in order for us to move forward.
1: Amen. Couldn't have said it better. Um, Zakia and Wright, I am so pleased you got to join us. It was short, but it was sweet. Where can our listeners follow you, support you, learn more about you?
5: I am on... Instagram as Kias Law Officina so K I A S L A W O F I C I N A. And then my name on Facebook Zakia Enright. Um, and I would love to engage and if there are folks that are interested in having these conversation of how do we let continue this this passion, how do we continue it into change and justice and what that even looks like going forward. I would ha- I'm happy to engage in those conversations and welcome them.
1: Okay, welcome back. I am joined now by Christian D. Green. He is a member of the Stonewall Leadership Cohort. He's a pretty impressive guy. Now, let me see if I can get your academic pedigree just perfectly <laughs> accurate. He has a, an MA from UCLA in African American Studies. He has a yes. BA from UCLA in Sociology. He is currently an adjunct professor at the LA Valley College and LA Southwest College and Pasadena City College and <laughs> LA Trade College and Cal State University Dominguez Hills and UCLA. Yes,
4: so he's a
1: very smart man and a and a man who's spreading that smart unto the world. It's Trying. Christian D. Green.
6: <laughs> hey y'all. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: What what inspired you to get involved in politics?
6: Um, my love for history and my love for uh, political change and shifting the dynamics Um, in Lancaster, Palmdale. I don't know if you're too familiar with it, but it's very conservative out here. Uh, It's a red uh, area. It's probably the only red area that I know of that is in the L.A. County. We're still a part of L.A. County. And it's been under uh, under the red control or conservative control for the last what since I've been here in 1998. And uh, I I wanted to try to make some type of change. And uh, yeah, that's what we're here for.
1: And, uh, you know, yes, I'm familiar with Palmdale. I've, I've definitely been there. And um, I think, uh, you know, we're, look, we're entering into LGBTQ Pride Month. And at the same time, there are these sort of global, certainly all over the country, protests demanding racial justice after the the murder of George Floyd and What do you feel about these protests? And then in particularly with regard to Palmdale, I mean, I know that we just got news about a a man who was lynched there just yesterday, I believe it was. So, I mean, what are your your thoughts on that? How are you feeling and how are you doing?
6: Uh, Yes, sir. Um, So in regards to that, overall, I think protests are, protest is a great way of advocating for change. I mean, you look at it. Oh, we're in the third week or I think the third week of actually pushing protests. I mean, you look at all the policies and the things that have been um, shifted. Right. And so you have on a worldwide scheme, um, people in Belgium, my friends in London, um, in France, um, out here all the way to New York, over here um, in L.A., uh, Houston. I went to Houston last week and they were protesting for George Floyd. And I know that there is a a great call and a great uh, need for it. I mean, Breonna Taylor's case got reopened. Um, Minneapolis, uh, I believe they uh, banned a new. Uh, they created a new law. I forgot what the name of it is. Forgive me. But also, all the four officers were charged. These protests are actually holding these politicians to you know accountability, and that's what we need in transparency. In Palmdale, there was a young man. He's twenty-four. Uh, his name is Robert Fuller Jr. I'm working directly with the family in regards to being an organizer and an activist in that area. And um, it, it was a sad day, for sure. When I saw the article, initially it was sent to me. There was no, uh, no race, there was no um, age that was identified in it. So we had to probe and ask, get more, more involved in it and do my own investigation, come to find out it was a young black boy. And you know, I teach African American history, and so when you see uh, hanging on a tree, that automatically, you know, it it prompts the idea of lynching. What appears to be lynching, and um, this is what we're, you know, advocating for out here, um, specifically for investigations, the autopsy, uh, autopsy, the independent, um, you know, uh, investigation. The FBI is out here, and we are working tirelessly, making sure that we push for the truth. There's been a huge mishandling of information. People don't know where he was hung at, if he was on a tree or if he was on a gazebo. Um, There's no cameras out here at the fire department. There's no cameras at City Hall. And so it's just a a lot of nonsense. And uh, we desire, you know, the truth to come out. And I believe that we're on the right path right now.
1: Do you think this is an inflection point? Do you think that this is a moment of where we have a real opportunity to change it? And um, what are your thoughts? Because we have less than 150 days till election day. And is there a way we can turn this activism and this um, real engagement into real policy change and and electoral change?
6: I I honestly think so. I think that the world is watching the Antelope Valley. I think that we have the momentum to really shift uh, the narrative that is out here. There's a huge black and brown population. This is a minority majority area. Um, We have over 20 percent in the double digits of black people. Right. We have over 30%, almost 40% of Latinos. And yet the people that hold power does not represent us. And I think that this is a great opportunity for us to keen in on this area, get all of our allies in the LA County area and bring all the resources out here. This is gonna take a lot of work. Um, I'm helping Christy Smith go, uh, Team Smith, um, Team Christy over here. We're trying to make sure that we get her into Congress and we we need that seat. And same thing with Kip Mueller. He's one of my good friends. He's running for Senate. Um, And those two will be a a major, major, major turn for this area. Um, I believe that they care for uh, our community. And um, I'm going to make sure that uh, I hold them accountable. Right. And so there is an old guard that is set up here. There's a regime that is set up in this area. And if people don't know that um, I'm challenging them today, even on this call, like get up and get out here, see how you can help.
1: I like what you said about holding them accountable. See, see, to me, too much focus has been placed on Democrat versus Republican politics. And here's the deal. It's not like we're out to just elect Democrats or on the Republican side, they're just out to elect Republicans. It's about if you don't like what's going on in government, you switch that seat and then the work is not done. It's only half done. Then you hold that that representative accountable to make sure that they do what you put them there to do. So I really salute that notion. Um, A lot of people, I think, with Barack Obama, we thought our work is done. And you see what happens in 2016 when people get complacent and they just assume.
6: Yeah, yeah.
1: So what's the one number one most important issue to you that you would like to see uh, really receive attention in American politics, whether locally in Palmdale or nationally?
6: I'm going to ride the wave of uh, police reform, but I like to say police transformation. We need to transform um, the ideologies, uh, the structure, the the biases, their training. We need to transform that. You, we, you know, people are against the reformation. I'm honestly against it too. You know, reform is a, a crin a cringer. I'll make up that word, but uh, we need to make sure that we we transform the mindsets of what's going on in there. Police are trained to shoot first and ask later, and that has to change, right? And, you know, there's out here specifically in Lancaster and Palmdale. I mean, people aren't talking about uh, Michael Thomas. Um, I don't know if you know what happened with Michael Thomas. This happened about 24 hours later after Robert Fueller in Lancaster, right? Five miles down the street of of an older man in his 60s who was uh, shot by the police without a warrant. They busted into the house and did not give no notice, uh, just busted in there. They said that he reached for the gun. I mean, how many times have we heard that before, right? And so there is a huge need for to the accountability, the transparency, and the visibility of what's going on in the police area, specifically in the Animal Valley.
4: Amen.
1: Thank you so much. So Christian D. Green, it's been a pleasure. Where can our listeners uh, find you, support you, learn more about you?
6: Yeah, definitely. Um definitely on Facebook. It's uh, Christian D. Green. I am also on Instagram. It is uh, Christian423. And on Twitter, I try to tweet every now and then. Um, it's Professor661. And that's our area code out there. So we'd love to hear from you all.
1: Very good. That's been Christian D. Green. Thank you so much for joining us, Christian. Thank you so much. You have a great day and peace to you all. We are back with Lucky Alexander. He's a member of the Stonewall Leadership Cohort. And he's on the LA County Transgender Advisory Council. He's the founder of an amazing uh, uh, nonprofit group called the Invisible Men. He's Lucky Alexander, and he's joining us now. How are you? Absolutely, thank you for having me.
7: I appreciate the the space and time.
1: Talk to me a little bit about Invisible Men and what inspired you, and and what it does. Well, Invisible Men, um, which
7: we started about, uh, well, I, I came up with the concept about about two years ago, uh, where. I was trying to figure out, like, how do I how do I leverage the, the skills that I have in order to help my community? Because what I noticed was um, there weren't any resources for trans men, especially trans men of color um, around, you know, medical, mental health, support, emotional support and all these different pieces. And I know for me, like throughout my transition, one, I didn't see anybody that looked like me as far as like a black man uh, for a long time for about 10 years into my transition and, um, even more so not having any of those resources that were available. So around, you know, like imagine someone like me, uh, that looks like me, like, you know, I'm cis male passing, right. So going to a OBGYN office or going to, um, any of these like services that are generally made for women, right. Or for women, you know, presenting people. And so what I did was, um, I said, you know what, one, Folks need to know that there's a problem before we can ask for solutions. So let's uplift the voices of transmasculine folks. So I created a platform online, which we call all of the folks that have shared their stories online legacies. So each legacy um, is given a page of their own to tell their story, however they choose to tell it, because I feel like in, in the st- storytelling process that folks should be able to. To tell their own stories from their perspective, because it is their story, um, because I had seen so many different versions of different narratives of what trans men are supposed to be or even the lack of. So I just wanted to create that space for folks.
1: I think maybe, and you can offer your insight onto this, we've seen a little bit of progress in terms of representative representation for for trans people in the media, but there seems to be a long way to go. Would you say that that's accurate? And where would you like to see us? How far are we along on moving the needle there?
7: Um, Well, I would absolutely... Trans women, unfortunately, get more visibility because of the murders, because of the violence, because of all of the things that they go through. And so they've been able to kind of leverage that platform. But trans men experience their uh, violence in a different kind of way. So uh, trans men are the highest demographic to experience suicidology. So we have um, your general population falls in the range of like 15 percent. And then for trans women. Um, and our non-binary siblings, it falls between 25 and 27%. Um, and this is like attempted suicide or, um, like ideology, the whole nine. Right. And then trans men fall into the 55% range. And so, um, uh, that's where a lot of that violence happens is within like the mental health part of that within, um, the, the verbal violence or, you know, a lot of that violence also goes unreported because, we're given this narrative that you know you're a man. You're you're supposed to be able to take it. You're supposed to be able to, to handle this and stop being so sensitive, right? And so um, imagine having that space to be able to to express I'm not okay, right? And not having anywhere to go once that space, like once you start to look like I do as a cis male passing person, um, there's no space, especially in the black community, there's no space to say you know I'm I'm not okay. Um, and it's actually dangerous because then you're seen as weak. So I wanted to make sure that we created that space within invisible men. And we partnered with quite a few different organizations in order to reach out and resource those things that they already
1: provide. I think that's fantastic. And it brings up a point that I think is very interesting to me about gender, uh, gender politics in general, about the way that men are expected to stuff, stiffen up their upper lip, um, and, take things in stride and not be emotional and plus the, the transition process for you was ten plus years, you said?
7: Right. So I started my um, my transition in, in different phases, right? So my social transition where like I walked through life and and I, you know, took on a different name and all of these different pieces was within like the first ten years. And so I really started to do a lot of research and tried to figure out like what this looks like for people of color. And most of the narratives that I came across were white men. And so for a long time, I felt like that maybe it was a cultural thing that maybe black folks didn't do this. Right. And then um, about 10 years ago, I met uh, another black trans man for the first time in person um, with the Brown Boy Project. And so um, I was like, oh, my God, like this is it. And, you know, in that range of time, they had also just passed the law that, you know, all of the hormones and trans care, you know, falls under necessary medical care. And so I found out that I had access to Hormones and so I think maybe two weeks when I came back from the the brown boy retreat I I was on hormones. I I was like, this is this is what I've been looking for This is the the confirmation that I needed that I'm not alone in this thinking I'm not alone in and how I'm feeling and I found so many different networks of black trans men on social media and in the different avenues
1: Fantastic. Um, and, you know, we're going into LGBTQ Pride Month and at the same time, there's like uh, nationwide and in fact, global um, protests happening, demanding racial justice and uh, and uh, justice for the murder of George Floyd and and countless others uh, who have been fallen victim to absurdly brutal policing practices. So how do you feel about those protests right now? And do you feel that the queer community, the LGBTQIA community has a responsibility to these to these to this movement?
7: Well, one, the movement, the, the death of George Floyd definitely rocked me quite a bit because I am a black man. Um, I gave birth to a black son. And so and he's 18. So he's a, I'm, blo- I'm a black man raising a black man. And so, yes, George Floyd's death was was pivotal in in this moment but it definitely rocked me but even more so two days later a black trans man was killed by the name of tony mcdade and so with tony mcdade that that hit a little different because now i see i literally see myself in this young man and seeing my demographic being targeted just no different than any other black person um and with that Uh, We also just did a march here in LA, which was like 30,000 plus people. I was part of the board that put that march together. And I'm also the designer of the mural that was down on Hollywood Boulevard. So uh, we've we've taken that step. The, The LGBT community has taken that step to really encompass all black lives. Um, which, you know, like black people do intersect with the LGBT community. So that only makes sense.
1: Are you feeling like that what you're observing, having been a participant to that and helping organize it? Do you see this as an inflection point that's going to lead to political change?
7: I can only hope. Uh, I think that representation within the political sector is necessary for change to actually happen and be sustainable. I think that representation within all of those political realms, whether it be like high end within like maybe the presidency or, you know, in that realm or even lower down into the, the city and state local governments, it's definitely necessary to have that um, to have that representation in those different ways. That way we do have a seat at the table and we do are able to uh, hold stock in what what those decisions are and and how they're made
1: and what does effective allyship look to you for people that are listening to this who feel compelled to be a part of it and help but don't know how to be effective allies or are new to the movement what does effective effective allyship look like for people who are who are maybe cisgender or who might be who might be white or not people of color
7: it's necessary for our allies uh, however they may present themselves whether they're white or otherwise i think it's necessary one to talk to their friends and and talk to their friends and have those hard conversations about what racial bias really looks like for them and really be able to admit you know like maybe i do have a racial bias and then once once folks are able to kind of see their own biases then they're able to change those things right and also i think that for allies that are that have privilege or or leveraged in a certain way to use that in order to uplift these bodies and these lives that are are being brutally attacked or allowing this racism to, to continue is is not necessary. Like really, if we leverage the different things that we have within our wheelhouse to, for the betterment of all people. Because if we get this right for the, the, the most marginalized communities, we'll get
1: it right for everybody. Lucky, where can people find you if they wanna support you or your organization?
7: So they can check us out at Invisible T-Men, and that's with the letter T in the middle dot uh, com and then we're on Instagram at Invisible transmen and we're on uh, Facebook at Invisible Me
1: <laughs> Lucky Alexander, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you
0: That was LGBTQ Leaders of Tomorrow presented by host Alex Mahajer Thank you Alex Because you were born this way baby